forever. Dog. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writers Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh yeah! Shannon Carbonell, thanks for chatting with me. Um, you have this. You have this book out that I think our listeners are really going to enjoy. Tell us a little bit about it. What is the title again? The title is All Is Not Lost. And it's a book. Do you want me to tell you? Yeah, tell me, please. Great. Um, It's a book about, it's not really about lost, but it's about a year I spent when Nestor was shooting Lost, the very last year, the producer said, you're going to be in every episode. Um, you may as well bring your whole family out. And so we were lucky enough to um, live in Oahu for a year. And the sort of the, it's the like the backdrop is Lost. I sort of think of it as, remember that movie? Oh, no, I'm going to get the movie's name. With Meryl Streep, um, it was written by the... Um, Oh, the brothers. Remember when she was the orchid? Oh, the orchid thief. That was the movie. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember that That's movie? Right. Of course. <laughs> yes. I sort of feel like it's kind of like that movie when there's a movie going on behind the movie. Mm-hmm. And um, and it, it's really a year about um it's a year that sort of culminated in a in a, about four years of my life where I had quit acting and become a full-time mom. And during that time, I had not, I had not transitioned very well into that role. And I had been sort of, I didn't, I had really quickly lost my identity because it had been all tied up in being an actor. And and sort of like a lot of moms do um, after quitting your career for motherhood had been sort of floundering and not knowing my place in the world and also, you know, not realizing even though it's it's a love job and and, it, and you wouldn't do it any other way, not realizing kind of the day-to-day, the minute-to-minute life of being a mom and how kind of sort of mundane it can be at times, rewarding, of course, and feeling the great privilege of being able to be a mom at home. But kind of rearranging my place in the world and having a sort of an internal sort of crisis with that. Sure. Um, But also feeling the guilt that came with that, at knowing how lucky I was to Mm -hmm. be in that place and knowing that I was, I had to be there for my kids, you know? So it was this whole journey, but it really culminated in the last year in Hawaii, which was sort of the, the height of the journey because I had a huge conflict with um, my family, my parents while in Hawaii. And, but then it all kind of came together in Hawaii as well. Hmm. And that's why I call it all is not lost because there was also stuff that happened there that was really similar. I felt like a survivor actually. <laughs> um, I felt like a, like I crashed on that Island um, and sort of ended up like debris of the plane after I had the fight. And then I sort of felt like eventually I found a lot of healing on that island and I'd been sort of almost called there because of the people and the land itself. Hmm. That's why I relate it that way. Yeah. That's, that's a great story too. Um, I think my first question is 
you're coming to the culmination of sort of reckoning with all these feelings that you're having and, and these experiences that you're having. Why write? Uh, have you always written things down? Why was that the way to process things? That's a great question. Um, I journaled while I was there because which it's a great thing about moving somewhere or going on this sort of life adventure. Um, like I wanted to record it. And so I journaled every night I was there and obviously I was an actor. I wasn't a writer, but as an actor, I did all my backstory of characters through writing. And so, you know, as an, as an um, actor, you are a sort of a cog in the wheel of a story and you are doing your part of making a story come to life. You're sort of servicing somebody else's story. Um, but so my way through in telling the story better was to always, you know, the character has background and you have to know the background, um, not to replay it on stage, but to just fill yourself out as a character. Right. So like if say my character says, um, you know, yesterday when I went to the store with dad, um, all those things happened yesterday, you know, at the store with dad. And I kind of have to fill that out mentally and physically within my whole body of what happened when I went to the store with dad, what happened? We were, did we have a fight? Did, were we good? Who was at the store? What does that mean? Was it loaded or was it just, you know, we went to the store and this happened. So whatever I, to service that story best as told by the playwright or the screenwriter, I have to fill in that. And for me, that was always writing. I had a really, really powerful pen brain gut connection. And so I wrote, I just always wrote stories, story after story, after story, after story. And so if it was a big role, it was, you know, a little story. I mean, sorry, a big role. It was books and books and books, you know, like if I played, you know, a big role in a play, something like that. Mm -hmm. Or if it was a small role, it was like a tiny couple of pages. And so that's the, and I had journals and journals and journals of material that I'd written. And it just was this natural kind of crossover to me. And that's how I wrote a story. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how, like, how, so, so as you're like, it, it feels like a very natural extension of, you know, processing feelings and experiences to get it down on paper that that is understandable how do you start to form that into a book into a narrative you know how do you start to give that structure yeah that that's hard so i sort of wrote as long as i could and i'm you know i trained for four years in theater school to become an actor so i i sort of got as much down in pages and what i had done make i had sort of made the book diary form um, and for, at first, actually, I called it Diary of a Lost Housewife. So that was my structure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, that was my structure. And then I did a, a memoir course at UCLA. And I sort of really learned about through line. And once I had my through line, it was really easy to structure it. And I really, and it's almost like you need somebody else's eye almost to see what the through line of your book is. And this teacher I had was amazing too. And she could very clearly see, oh, you, you needed, you were searching for this. This is what you always need in this book. And so keep an eye on that throughout the whole book. And 
of course, it, for me, it was, you know, this journey through trying to be whole again, really it was, was, I was, I was trying to figure out who I was and what I was going to do without this big label of career or actor. And once I figured that out, it became very clear how to structure it. It was sort of, you know, where was I in the beginning? I was really, really lost, right? And then I structured it as as I went, the pieces I found. Or, um, I, you know what I did? I watched, have you ever seen that Kurt Vonnegut um, um, video of how to structure a story, how a story can be? It's really good. No. It's on YouTube. And he okay. sort of says to you, you can have a story that goes like he'll do a mountain. It can go, you hear something happens and he sort of picks it up. And then, well, like uh, girl wants boy, girl meets boy. Here's your top of the mountain. Girl loses boy, girl finds boy. And then and as girl finds boy, it goes in a straight line. Mm-hmm. Girl gets boy back. Or you can have a story that goes like lots of little mountains you know, you find this, you need this, you find this, but then this happens. Then you need this again. And then this happens. And then this again. And that's how I found my journey was a little, little mountains. And so that's how I sort of structured it. Sort of where did my, I'm doing a memoir. So I have to be obviously truthful. So I looked at his little structures and I thought, oh yeah, mine was like a lot of little mountains. And so that's how I structured it truthfully. Yeah, It, it makes a lot of sense. That's great. Um, did you come out the other side feeling like telling this story had given you the catharsis or realization that you wanted? Yes, very much. And also, I mean, I don't want to give away the ending of the book, but there was something in telling the story that I needed back that I had mm-hmm. fully rejected. And part, it takes a lot, it's a lot to do with them. Um, I had, um, as a little, as a nine-year-old, I had decided I wanted to be an actor, but there was a very, very big moment in my life I had done that. And I had really tried to kick that little girl around as, as an older person and get rid of her. And in sort of this, 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 so you have to read that in the book. And then in this um, journey, I realized towards the end that I'd been too rough on that person that me and I needed something that she gave me and it was really beautiful what what I had given myself as a little girl and and in in writing the book I realized oh no oh look what she gave me look what I gave myself and I brought something back in Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, All is not lost. Folks can check it out. Uh, Shannon Carbonell, thanks so much for chatting. Oh, you're so welcome. This is how a podcast starts. Thank you all for being here. Uh, what I'm going to do is go around and ask you to introduce yourself so the listener knows what you sound like and tell us uh, some places they may have seen your name on their television screen or elsewhere. And Talisha, let's start with you. Hi there. My name is uh, Talisha Rags, and I uh, just finished up a stint as co-EP on NCIS New Orleans. Um, I've also been on the series uh, The Originals as well as Switched at Birth. Uh, And my career actually started on a comedy that never aired called uh, Thick and Thin. 
but uh, but it was a great experience and certainly set the stage for me doing uh, what I'm doing today. So. Great. I, I want to talk about that comedy that never aired in a minute, but we'll, we'll come back around. Shauna. Uh, hi, I'm Shauna McGarry. Um, I am a writer. Uh, yeah, I'm currently on an Amazon show that uh, is yet to be picked up, but we're writing 10 episodes in animated comedy. That's sort of been my um, area lately. Uh, before this, I worked on Tuka and Birdie season two. Um, before that, uh, Katie Keene for the WB, which is sort of a dramedy, sadly short-lived, and BoJack Horseman before that. Um, but my career has mainly been in comedy as a writer. Um, my first staff job was anger management with Charlie Sheen. I was there for three years, um, died and then came back to life and um, uh, did other, I did a few CISO shows to help me kind of transition into other adult comedy spaces, did Cartoon Network shows. I've been a little bit all over the place. I've been really lucky that way. So, um, but I love writing for animation and, um, I love uh, working with the people I've been working with, with the last, for the last few years. Great. Good to hear. Uh, and we'll get into a lot of that stuff as we move along. Uh, Paul. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Paul Bay uh, from Vancouver, Canada. Unlike Talisha and Shauna, uh, you will not have seen my any of my stuff on TV. Uh, this is the year I hopefully get a green light on one of two things. I have uh, something with Amazon called Shoot the Moon, a dramedy starring Ken Jeong and Daniel Day Kim, that's in development. And I got something, I think I'm about to say, I, I sold to AMC, I can't say what it is, uh, but hopefully that goes. Um, but maybe podcast lovers will have heard my audio dramas, uh, one of them, the, the Black Tapes, or the Big Loop, an anthology series, um, uh, both of which also had development deals that ended up going nowhere. <laughs> <on TV. laughs> Congratulations. It's good to be in the mix, right? <laughs> right. Um, I wanna start by asking, a process question because it's something that is on my mind right now. I'm working on a, a series that, you know, we're sort of in the phase where we've tipped over all the toys onto the floor and are sort of figuring out where they all go. So it's applying structure to all of these big ideas that we've been putting together in the past few weeks. Um, and I want to ask about that for all of you, whether you're working in a room, whether you're working on your own, what does that look like for you? What tips do you have for the phase that is like basically putting together a 10 episode outline? Uh, and anyone who wants to jump in, uh, please do. Don't be polite. Uh, well, I know for me, the first thing um, that I do is whether I'm writing uh, one hour or 10 hours or however many hours. Um, first thing first is what do I wanna see? What, uh, what, who are my characters? And what do I wanna see my characters do? Um, what, uh, uh, what scenes do I wanna see? Um, uh, and, and how do I wanna see my characters interact with each other? What journeys do I want my characters to go on? What emotional journeys, uh, what, uh, what story journeys, physical journeys or whatnot. And usually, well, depending on the series, if it's sort of serialized drama, then everything should pretty much be based in emotion. Um, 
So, you know, what do I want them to go through? What do I want them to learn by the end? You know, and then sort of usually by that time, things will start to emerge, which are themes. Uh, things will, um, uh, other things will start to emerge, like, uh, for example, connections between uh, characters in the scripts, like some of the things they may have in common, or maybe things that they are in are diametrically opposed. Um, and if that's the case, um, then what scene would be interesting to have the two of them in that makes both of them sort of confront, you know, whatever it is that, you know, that that I want them to do or who they are or something like that. Um, and I guess I, we should really say, first and foremost, we should we should know what it's about. <laughs> you know, like, is this, okay, so I wanna do a story about um, uh, a, a, a crew of astronauts who go to the moon and get stuck and end up not, uh, and, and everyone thinks that, oh, they're geniuses and they're going to figure it out and get back to earth. Uh, but the conclusion is they don't figure it out and they have to be okay with staying on the moon and possibly dying because they won't, people won't get to them uh, in time. So, you know, so you, you have to know generally what, you know, what the story is. And then from there you go to uh, who the characters are and and what you want them to see and what they may be dealing with, um, as well as scenes you want to see that play out. I want to see that scene where Houston's like, uh, where, where they're like, you know, Houston, where's the scene? Houston, uh, we have a problem. And then I want to see where the, the scene where it's like, Houston, we can't fix the problem. And then the scene where Houston's like, don't worry, we're going to fix it. And then the scene where it's like, Houston's like, Mm, it's not going to get fixed, you guys. So, and, you know, and the scene with all of them then wrestling with the fact that they're going to die and the things that they didn't do and how they may connect to it. To it. So that's how I start. And then I love it. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I just want to cut in for one sec. Like, I love, I love this idea of a couple things. Um, one that you know, you're, you're creating answers and questions, right? You're creating solutions and problems. And I think that's the key to any of this stuff, right? It's a series of steps forward and steps back. Um, and I also love this idea of like creating these small anchors for yourself. What scenes do I want to see? What should be a part of this? I think that's great advice. And then from there, you will sort of lay out episode one, two, three, four, five through 10. And then you'll start to decide, well, naturally where would this scene go and it should be in here should right. be this, you know when they find out that it's not gonna work and it's a 10 episode okay well then that scene should probably be in episode nine maybe it's the finale or the conclusion of episode nine and then 10 is them saying their goodbyes or or maybe it's the beginning of 10 you know because that it might things might move as you start to fill in more um and then as you know that um, then you can go episode by episode and starting to break what the actual sort of plot looks like. Yeah. And then from there, you'll move things as uh, as things get better or they get worse <laughs> or you'll drop and you're at, you'll add. 
And uh, and yeah, at the end, you hope to have a 10 episode break. <laughs> I love it. Also, that is exactly the dramatic Gilligan's Island reboot that we're all looking for. So <laughs> thank you. There you go. Um, so Shauna... Shauna, you've been in a bunch of rooms. I mean, this sounds like the fairly typical and smart way of doing things. Have you taken anything from the rooms you've been in um, to break story in a a different way? Um, I think uh, that all sounds right. I mean, to break, you know, a 10 episode arc story, you mean, or, uh, yeah, I mean, I think you always are looking at it from a lot of different things you have to figure out. Like when you're answering kind of an external motor, like a plot device, like what is the question over the whole season? Like using the example of like the moon or what, trying to get back to earth or like, that's something, but it's not necessarily emotionally driven. That's like the thing that like, they might touch on episode to episode, but it's not going to run each episode. And then you're asking, what is your main character or main characters like emotional drive through the whole season? And how does every episode somehow set up that question again? Because it's TV and answer it again and then reboot it again in the next episode, answer it again. And like with little micro like um, movements forward, hopefully, but hopefully not too much because you at least need it to last the season. There's a dramatic like question of the character and then it at the very least you need it to last or hopefully you need it to last seven seasons or whatever um, in different forms. And then there's like the episode by episode actual plot, which should serve the bigger question or should always be like a reflection of those bigger questions, but just in like, and depending on whether it's dramedy or comedy or super serialized or not, like we're kind of past the age of like the Simpsons for the most part, where like every episode is a complete restart so for like the comedies that I've worked on lately um you do get to kind of have that serialized element which is really good um and fun and it allows you to build things um but yeah I mean as far as me when I'm developing a show or like writing out a pitch where I know I'm gonna have to kind of present what happens during season one um I, it's funny because you do start I ask, I always start pretty shallow like oh well, what is it about oh like I'll use one like I'm doing right now. It's about a girl band and, and they're like, well, what is it? But then what is it like about? And you're like, oh, right. Okay. I can't actually just, that's not anything. So then you realize like, okay, well, who are the main characters? It's these two young women and what are their relationships with each other? And um, where do we want to start that? And where do we want to end it? And I sort of am a believer that the pilot should mirror the finale of a season. Um, in just so much as you're reminding the audience, this is where we began. And this was like the thing that this character wanted so badly. And then have we done a good job of showing them all the avenues that like, um, have we done a good job of like allowing them to explore that desire through the season? And so we're gonna present it again to them in the finale and have they grown through going through all these trials to like get to basically what the same question was in the pilot. Um, Like if it's to be famous or if it's to like get a record deal or like whatever for that specific context. Um, So I I don't know if that makes sense, but it's fun for me to like to look at it big. And then it's basically like you're making a copy of a copy of a copy, but each copy has to be its own like, kind of wonderful, weird, original thing. 
Yeah, you're sort of turning over this stone of the theme and like looking at different facets of it, it feels like. Uh, how can we attack this question from a different angle or what does it look like from this side? I think that's really that's really neat. It's really smart. Um, Paul, I imagine on um, Black Tapes and on The Big Loop, you're doing a lot of this work yourself uh, on your own without a writer's room. Is that right? Uh, with the black tapes is with my partner Terry Miles, uh, who okay. also makes Tannis and Rabbits and all those other ones. Uh, and uh, but with the Big Loop, um, it's an anthology series, so I, I don't have a, a seasonal arc. I just have to write the different episodes. So I'm I'm just here taking notes from uh, Shana. <laughs> it's, like, it's like I'm taking a, a a very a very specified master class here. This is awesome. Absolutely. Um, then in that case, I want to move on to something that uh, both Talisha and Shana mentioned, which is um, the idea of pitching these big ideas, you know, you've sort of put together the characters and the relationship and what your show is about, both on the thematic level and on sort of the plot level. But that's so much to pitch and pitching for many of us uh, is an uncomfortable experience, anathema to why we got into this business. Um, so Talisha, I want to come back to you um, and talk about sort of distilling all of those ideas into a pitch and then we'll sort of go around because I know we've all you know done this work so I want to hear how everyone goes about it um well for me I think of this and I've done them I've done several of them now and and there have been uh, and work with several producers now and there there have been commonalities uh, to developing a pitch that um, that working with different producers seem to uh, sort of crystallize, and I kind of go with that kind of quote unquote format um, now. And um, and so whenever I'm developing a pitch, um, and quite frankly, this is yesterday and right now because things are changing quickly because of COVID and because of pitching on Zoom and whether or not we will continue to pitch on Zoom, things can continue to change. Um, so by no means should you take anything that I say as, uh, as, uh, as the gospel. But this is the gospel according to Talisha, which is uh, I pretty much start on um, start on, okay, so I know what the show is that I that I want to pitch. Okay, what is the thing that connects me personally to it? Whether it be um, the fact that I um, had a similar experience to my main character, whether it be that I know these characters because um, I'm basing them on family members, whether it be uh, because I, uh, uh, or whether it be because I'm a black female in America and um, and I've had my own run-in with uh, police, and this is a, a series on uh, in the somewhere in the justice system or something like that. Um, I speak from a personal um, experience that kind of tees up the reason that I'm interested in writing what I'm writing, um, and then from there I go into uh, what the series is. Um, and uh, sort of a, a brief log line or whatnot of what uh, the series is um, and what I kind of hope to accomplish 
with the series. Um, from there, um, I'll talk about uh, the characters. Um, from the characters, I'll then talk about what I want the pilot to be. Um, after the pilot, I'll talk about what I want, uh, how long I think it'll run, what the engine is, um, and then the first season engine, second season engine, third season engine, et cetera, et cetera. Um, then I'll talk about uh, thematically some of the things I, I'd like to explore um, in all of that and uh, wrap it up with a joke. Uh, and, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's about it. Now I say yesterday, today slash future, because that's pretty much, you know, the way I was writing pitches before COVID. Um, and then COVID came, um, and I kind of had to change it up a bit because typically, um, it, a pitch would be in person and it could be 25 to 30 minutes. Um, and, and then you're also answering questions with, um, with execs. Um, so then when you're on zoom, um, you would start to notice that the execs or I wouldn't say the execs, but just anyone and everyone, and not just the execs, the producers and hell myself included, uh, (laughs) suddenly, you know, you, you know, you see them and you see yourself just getting glass eye and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm talking so long. Is anybody even listening? I'm not even listening to myself. Wait, where am I in this pitch again? <laughs> oh God. And then you realize, oh man, I- I'm not having, you're not having the same effect as you would in the room because in the room, you know, you can feel people's energy um, and you can bounce off that. You can play off that. Um, so then it became necessary to cut the time <laughs> dramatically. Uh, and, and in doing that, you, you sort of sacrifice some pieces for other pieces and you kind of have to decide what you want to say in the pitch and then what you want to hold so that when they ask a question, you can then work it into the answer of that question and, you know, and, and get people sort of involved. So everyone's sort of keying in. Um, yeah, because, uh, it, it, and, and then if that, if that's not, you know, like, oh my God, weird enough, uh, then it started getting to the point where as, as we learn how to use zoom more, it was like, oh, wait, I can share my screen. Mm-hmm. Oh, snap. I can share video <laughs> and audio. What the hell? Why don't I just do a movie? All right. Let's do some animation. Let's put some pictures up in here. You know, let's do this. Let's do that. Yeah, let's make a jazzy presentation. Woo! Um, and you know, now we have jazzy presentations uh, where you can do some of the same things or not any of the same things. Um, but then you say, "Okay, great. I'm gonna do what she says. I'm gonna do the presentation bit." And except um, COVID seems to be ending very quickly. Uh, where we thought we'd be going through this for the rest of the summer. And I've now heard that executives are now back in their offices, which means we could possibly be doing these in person very soon, Um, which then begs the question of, shit, what now? You know, kind of a thing. So it's uh, constantly uh, moving, changing, morphing, you know, kind of 
target that you're trying to hit all the while with the consideration of, at least right now, which is what is happening right now? What is the situation right now? And, and how can I, <laughs> against, uh, um, and, and how can I, and how can I best present this material so that um, the people that are listening um, understand, fully understand what I'm trying to do uh, in the series and aren't so bored of me. They're just like, ugh, off with her head. So that's, yeah, that's kind of how I go about it. Yeah. I mean, I think you're absolutely right that things are constantly changing, you know, the past couple of years more than ever. But I also think like the structure that you gave us um, at the beginning here holds true no matter whether you're doing a five minute pitch or a 25 minute pitch. And I think that's that's a really good thing for especially new pitchers to hang on to is that structure. Um, Shauna, talk to me a little bit, please, about your pitching experience. Um, has it been similar to this? You know, what tips do you have for people who are new to pitching executives? Uh, well, I think Talia should give such a good rundown. Um, that's exactly all the things that you need to cover. Um, and she's right about Zoom kind of changing the rhythm of it all. And uh, I guess just a little more anecdotally this year, pitching over Zoom, like the negative or like things I, I wish I had kind of gone in knowing, like, I think in, I think everyone is trying to focus and trying to latch on to things in your pitch. So like a thing that happened to me was I said, you've got mail as a example of something in a pitch. And for some reason, the exact like latched onto that. And then at the end of the pitch was like, but your plot really wasn't, you've got mail. I don't quite understand, <laughs> you know? And so like, you're like, Oh, I think, so what is my, what is my tip is to just be like very aware of the things that you're including in like, cause you never know what um, some exec who's distracted is going to just like grab onto. Um, that was something I learned this year. Um, the visuals like uh, Talisha was talking about, or I, that I go to that first a lot of time in pitches, like that helps me focus. I love looking up example imagery and all that stuff, but like I have a whole Pinterest folder when I'm starting to write a pitch. So that part of the zoom has been really fun for me. And that like, um, I can share my screen and I can be sharing, um, and you can get like creative with it as you want. I mean, animation is a whole other thing because like hopefully you can have, if you have a producer on board who has some development funds, you can hire a person to help you design characters and you come in with original stuff. But if you can't do that, then like you just unfortunately steal <laughs> all the images you can from like the computer, knowing that it's not going to be published. It's just like to prove your point of what you're trying to sell. Um, so you bring in artists, you know, you have these, they're essentially mood boards. Um, when you discuss theme, when you discuss character, um, so to have that be in somebody's face, like they're watching TV, I think is pretty powerful tool that when we were doing it in person was a little more removed. Um, you know, and this is so basic just because that was such a good overview of the actual meat of a pitch. Like it was funny in our, in our writer's room, yes, a couple of days ago, one of our writers had a pitch and she had fake eyelashes <laughs> and she had put in like hair extensions and she, I mean, she's always gorgeous, but she suddenly on over zoom was like, Whoa, what happened? Like, and uh, <laughs> it, uh, the rest of us who are, um, 
you know, writers don't often think about that kind of stuff, I think. Um, but it was a little bit like, oh, right. Like, this is not just a presentation of your idea. This is a presentation of you as a person. And and there is this removal now because of screens. And um, just however, it's like, what do execs, we were kind of joking about what execs want writers to be. And it, I guess it is this, I mean, I don't, please, if you're not, if you don't see yourself as cool, you're every writer ever in the history of uh, the profession. But it is this sort of thing of like what you're not just selling the show because you're pitching it, you're selling yourself a little bit and like your, your attitude and your personality and why you are the best person to tell this story. And so if there's a way that you can use the medium of zoom to do that, like all the better. Uh, I was telling the writers in my room that like, um, you know, I know what I have going for me or is this sort of like brown haired, blue eyed sort of a thing. And so I usually like, I like have kind of learned to like, I don't know, like put in a red headband, like just make myself try to be poppy because you're like in a window grid with like a bunch of other people. Um, and you want to be the one that people are like, people are looking at themselves most of the time in zoom. So like, it's just, you just want to like, whatever you can do to just sort of be like, Hey, I'm the shiny fish over here. You know, um, I, I encourage, even though it sounds very shallow, <laughs> but that's unfortunately, I think what we have to be doing. No, it's really too true. And so much of it is the same thing. We, I think that comes easier to us when we're pitching in person is like, you're trying to make a connection. Right. Right. And when you have the remove of doing it over a computer screen, it's harder to make that connection. So anything you can do to draw people in, do it. I think that's really smart. Um, Paul, You've sold a couple pitches in the past few years. What's your secret? <laughs> How did you take us through, uh, if you would, the specifics of these pitches and why you think they worked? Yeah, I was just lucky. Uh, so in 2018, <laughs> uh, we, we sold, this was pre-COVID, of course. So we, I sold two in the room. And, and, and like uh, uh, Talisha said, it, like in the room, it was more conversational. You could, you could make eye contact. You could feel their energy. And, you know, I'm coming out of 12 years as a high school teacher and 12 years as a stand-up comedian. So I'm used to reading different energies. And uh, both those professions required me to, well, in stand-up comedy, you're in front of a bunch of people saying, I paid a lot of money to be here. I dare you to entertain me and you better be funny. Where, st where students were like, I don't want to be here. What the hell are you doing up there? And so executives fall right in the middle between <laughs> have to be here, but we want to enjoy this. So I, I found that I could read energy really well. And then when COVID hit, I was lucky to sell two more because I found, um, I have to, I, I make myself push through the screen and the storytelling more. Um, one I sold, I, 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 I totally know what, what they're talking about. When Talisha says the, the glassy eyed, I did one pitch and I'm like, oh my God, this, I had flashbacks to teaching again with my grade eights, their head on the desk. And, you know, I, I, these are executives, not exactly like students. They're not as high as students. So I had to do <laughs> something else. And so I'm pushing myself to the screen. And the next one, I thought, you know what? I need to be more animated. I need to do the dramatic pauses. I need to use comic timing. It's not, I'm not getting their energy. So I have to assume it's blank and, and force the energy on them. If, if that makes any sense. And that, but that's a weird one. Cause that, that totally polarizes my audience as to they're either going to like me or not. I'm not trying to read and win them over. I'm saying, this is what it is. This is the performance. And this is all I can do. And it's been successful. It's a different strategy, but it's been very successful. And I always start with a, a, a funny story that seems unrelated to the thing they read in the log line. Right? If they read the log line about this other thing, and I'll always start with as an introduction, you know, I'm from Canada. In 95, I was an evangelical Christian who married my college sweetheart. In 97, 
My wife left me and Jesus followed her out the door. So this is about superheroes. And then they were like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> so it brings them in. And um, I, I think Shauna talked about uh, uh, making yourself stand out. And, and someone told me, an exec told me to go, you know, uh, he didn't say gatekeeping worked to my advantage, but as soon as I come in as a Korean Canadian, um, they're like, how did you even get in this room? Like, you don't live in LA. Uh, you don't, you know, it's, it's, how did you even get in here? Like, what did you do to get in here? It's, it's so I feel like a unicorn. So I've got that advantage where they're like, oh. And I remember feeling that in stand-up clubs when, when I, back when uh, I was the only Asian comic on our circuit, the audience would stand up a little more and I'm following all these white comics. And then I, up I come and they're like, uh, oh, this should be interesting. And, I, and you know, the, the downside being, I better be really interesting. But, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a downside I'm willing to live with considering the, the upside that comes from, uh, you know, if you do well. You know, just when all else fails. Oh, <laughs> sorry. But just get a celebrity. <laughs> Your pitch. <laughs> sorry. Absolutely. I was just going to say, you know, it's, uh, uh, it, it's really interesting, Paul, because, you know, when you're growing up, when you're a kid and you're growing up, the only thing you want is to fit in. You just want to be like everybody else and you want to be, you know, you just want to fit in. You want to be a part of the team. You want to be a part of the crowd. Well, if you are, um, if you're a creative out here in Hollywood, you will find that being a part of the crowd is death, okay? The more original you are, the more you stand out, the more attention you will get. Um, so don't be afraid, you know, if, if, if this is the business that, you know, you want to be in, and this is what I tell, you know, young people who are ask me young the young people uh who ask me all the time but um they a lot of them the, you know, when they're coming out of school they're just like oh i can't get the writer's assistant gig how am i ever going to break into tv and the this and the that and this and the that and i say look um the vast majority of writers in this business did not start off as writer's assistants you have people the vast majority of writers in this business had different careers as a matter of fact, and that career is what made them stand out and therefore help them, you know, help them get, get on the ladder in Hollywood. So Paul, first of all, by being Canadian, you know, down or in Hollywood is like, oh, we gotta, we, we, we gotta get someone from the Commodores here. All right, let's see what he's got to say. And then, and then he's Asian as well. It's like, wait, 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 does that happen? Does Canadian Asian happen? <laughs> wait, 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 okay, so wait, um, this doesn't compute. Yeah, this is gonna be interesting. Dude, tell me your story. And and that original story and you know that no one else has is the one thing that will make them remember you. Okay, like for example, when I was first starting out, my brother and I had just been on the amazing race. There weren't a lot of race, there weren't a lot of writers who were on the amazing race. So naturally, when um staffing comes along and I met this executive three years ago, and my agent or my manager is calling them like, ooh, they're the current on that show. Get the executive support for Talisha to get this job. And they go, hey, so remember my client Talisha? Who? The one from the amazing race. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's how they remember you. So <laughs> Paul, Paul's got it. Uh, he, he's he's got it going on. He's nailed it, and now he's been able to carve a very successful career um, 
uh, in the business for himself because not a lot of people can do what he does. So kudos to you, Paul. Thank you. It's so funny because uh, I, I saw I, I, during this one meeting, I thanked the executives for, um, uh, and I think I'm going to do this more often for 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 being my counselors and letting me have this free counseling session where I get to hear all these perfect, smart people listen to my problems. And I remember I remember during the that bad time. I remember because you know, as writers, we all draw on our experience, and we're finding out the more pain we went through, the more story we have. And I remember in '97 during my divorce, all my Christian friends, because I was I was their youth pastor. I remember they came up to me and they're like, dude, maybe God has a plan. Maybe this fits in. I remember being really angry saying, what is, what is losing my faith and losing my wife have to do with God's plan? Name me one single thing, good thing that can come out of this. And like, we don't know. And then decades later, uh, uh, last month, I had to write my friends an apology note saying, hey, remember that time I swore at you for saying God had a plan? Well, I just sold it to Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sorry I yelled at you. God's plan was for you to make a lot of money off of exactly. your bank. Boom. Love it. God's about the bank. Yeah. I mean, we do, we mine our lives, right? Like that's, that's the job. Mine the stuff that you are, uh, get it across to other people. Um, let's talk for just a couple minutes. Um, since Talisha mentioned breaking in, um, let's hear the origin stories. Shauna, what was, um, anger management was the first, uh, writing job for you? Yeah, and I totally agree with uh, Talisha talking about having other life experiences. Unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know, whatever. My life is my life. Um, I basically left film school, uh, went to NYU, became a nanny uh, in LA, um, and uh, got my first like writer's a PA job, writer's assistant job, kind of within a year and a half. And I had been there through all my 20s. So, and then eventually was staffed. So I, I am one of those writers that's just kind of, even though I'm, you know, I'm in my um, mid to late 30s, <laughs> I do feel like more than half my life has just like been in writer's rooms. So, but I started in, um, I was in a teen drama, South of Nowhere, um, which I really uh, was lovely and very low budget. Um, we shot it in Whittier at a correctional facility that had a high school campus. Um, it was about teen uh queer girls but created by a straight white guy so you know I don't know if it'll be canonized and um uh but because of that there were only one staff writer and a showrunner and a writer's assistant who was me basically so I got to write all the webisodes which were a thing at the time I got to write a script eventually and I just was so green I didn't and I didn't really have confidence I just didn't think I was ready I just so I didn't know how to parlay any of these kind of these nice leg ups that these writers were giving me into things. And then the writer strike happened um, in 2007 and a lot of people didn't work and a lot of people moved back home. It's kind of a, it reminds me a lot of COVID, you know? Yeah. I don't know what your experience was, Talisha, but yeah, like I remember being in a cab years later and, um, or an Uber or something. And somebody had just moved back to LA who had left with the writer strike and they were Ubering, you know, dry. And I, I remember thinking, God, you're so lucky because um, basically I got the script coordinator job on this, on this show called 24. I don't know if you've heard of it, um, as the writer, like, was, um, I didn't mean to introduce it that way. Um, I interviewed for 24, the writer strike happened and then 24 of course came back. So I was very lucky to have the script coordinator job. And I was there for like the last few seasons before it ended, before it came back again or whatever, six years later or whatever. So, um, but that was a similar experience to anger management. I was the only woman kind of in the staff uh, area. Like I, I was the script coordinator. They didn't have a writer's assistant. Um, all the 
EP, it was all mm. above the line, like EP, co-EP writers mm. by that point, season seven and eight, all men, all white men, mostly. Um, uh, it was even split down the middle of like super conservatives, more liberal. Um, they used to smoke cigars every afternoon. Like it was just such a, a, an old fashioned environment. And um, so I was there and then I, one of those writers brought me to Dexter where I was a script coordinator for two seasons and I just knew the whole time I kind of wanted to be jumping over to comedy because just the way um, <laughs> at least these men talked in these shows was not how I witnessed um, anyone in my life ever talking. Um, <laughs> so I, and so I started doing UCB classes and all that stuff. And, um, you know, but I was really shy. I didn't, I, I, again, like I just didn't really push myself on anyone that I ever worked with. And it, it wasn't until, um, so I got hired as Bruce Helford's assistant on a pilot and he's the one that ended up running anger management. And so it wasn't until him and I started getting to write in comedy and could kind of like feel out my voice and realize like, Oh, this is where my strengths are starting to develop. And that I felt, uh, more kind of like chutzpah to be like, Hey dude, I want to be a writer. <laughs> um, so, uh, he, he gave me, um, my break as a staff writer on anger management, which was both like the biggest gift of my life. And also, um, you know, the day I found out anger management was his next gig because he told me whatever his next gig was, he would staff me on, um, you know, I cried at my desk because I just like, <laughs> I knew it was like my, my in, um, but it was right after Charlie Sheen had sort of imploded and, um, uh, it was, you know, I, I, it just wasn't my, my show, but while I was there and sort of suffering <laughs> through, um, <laughs> that, I, the content of that show, let's just say, uh, and the environment a little bit, I was so desperate to explore my own voice and all the things that, that I started doing the moth a lot, storytelling. I started my own storytelling show. I started, um, you know, just really trying to be part of the communities out here that I wanted to be a part of, um, which were younger and more female and queer and multiracial and all the things. Um, and so it was, I really, it's like this, it's like cause and effect. It's like partly, I think I was so pushed into this other world because I was so sort of, um, yeah, that's my, that's my twenties. <laughs> <laughs> did you did you feel I mean coming out of 24 and sort of the like you say like very old style room that that was let's let's put it that way um did you I mean like we talk about comedies and sort of the the comedy room doesn't have a reputation for being much better but did you feel like you were more among your people in a comedy room Uh, do you mean like anger management versus 24 or comedies I'm in now? I mean, yes, of course. Like anger management I, or, or even. <laughs> I, don't know, I think writers are writers. I think we're all just trying to like figure out characters and we're trying to like express ourselves and express, uh, you know, like Paul was saying, pain from our childhood or our divorces or however we need to like, you know, uh, figure it out. Uh, we're all, a lot of us are very neurotic, unfortunately, um, <laughs> or fortunately it helps us write but, or pick at things, but sometimes, you know, it doesn't help us outside the writer's room. I mean, 
uh, I think what's exciting to me now being like, I'm the oldest person in my current room, which is nuts. Um, like having to, you know, get mad at them for not having seen LA stories, like a crazy thing to me. (laughs) Um, but like, uh, when I was starting out, you know, the majority of those guys, both on 24, like those guys had come through X-Files and, um, you know, uh, Chicago Hope and all these like old, like, I'm so sorry, guys, like 90s dramas. And then the comedy guys on anger management had come from like the dinosaurs and Veronica's closet and friends. And like, so those are just, it's just a different decade of what is funny and what we allow, like you were talking about gatekeeping, like through, uh, it wasn't what I was thinking was funny <laughs> a lot of the time. Like when it, when yeah. one of my jokes didn't make it in the script and anger management, it would be a little bit like, at first I'd be like, Oh fuck, your joke sucks. And then like, you get it, you're a little, you're in there a little longer and you're like, yeah, this guy doesn't know what, um, bisexual means. So, uh, I'm not, I'm not worried. I just need to get out of here, <laughs> you know? And so now I'm, now I'm in rooms where I'm so grateful to be the kind of person who needs to be told the, the, the more conscious, wonderful, progressive areas of comedy that people are, are, um, wandering through. Um, and I just want to be open to it where I think older rooms, there was a lot of defensiveness because they knew we were coming for them. <laughs> we're like, we're going to take their jobs and it's happening slowly. Um, and it needs to happen more and more. So there, there anyway, is that feeling though. It yeah, it does. And there is that feeling. I mean, my first staff job was on season seven of supernatural and the people who had been there forever were like, Oh shit these young people coming after us and like you couldn't pitch anything um well, Talisha, you've of... been on a number go ahead oh no i was just gonna say there's a lot of rules that are made up in in rooms or that were made up in rooms like staff writers aren't allowed to talk for the first year or like um there's a hierarchy of seating positions or something all, all these things that you hear about from like these older rooms that are being pushed forward by people who existed in that structure um, and what you really need to deconstruct and investigate is why are those rules in place and who are they keeping um, from speaking? Mm-hmm. And is it is it alternative voices in the room? Is it younger people? Is it queer people? What, how are they enforcing power dynamics that are not actually allowing your story that you're being told to, that you're trying to tell to be inclusive and challenging and um, what narrative are we continuing to stress and prioritize by allowing the culture of rooms to remain the same? So all that stuff, um, I think, needs to be and is being reevaluated, and it yeah. can only be good. Absolutely, and and Talisha, that's what I wanted to talk to you about too. I mean, you've been in some rooms with you know a mix of levels of writers. You've been in rooms for longer periods where you can sort of figure out those rules that, you know, those arbitrary rules that they have um, to keep people out or keep things the way they are. Tell me a little bit about navigating that and how you, you know, like what I really want to hear about is 
what who did it right? You know, who who had a room for it? What room were you in that was open to change and evolution and, you know, making the kind of room that I think we all want to be in? Well, um, I've been pretty fortunate in that every room that um, I've been on, every show that had a room, there were two shows that I was on that uh, that didn't have rooms. Uh, that was NYC22 as well as Ironside. Um, but the other shows that I've been on that had rooms, um, I've been very fortunate in those showrunners have always been very open to everyone and hearing comments from everyone, including the writer's assistants. Um, so uh, when I first started, I first started on a show, like I said, that, uh, that never aired called Thick and Thin. It was supposed to be for NBC. It was about women and their weight issues. And it started, it starred uh, Jessica Capshaw. And um, I was terrified because I'm like, oh God, I got the job. Oh God, I got the job. Um, and I'm like, well, what do I do now? And I talked to this guy, um, a friend I had uh, named Michael Ajakwe, who um, a lot of writers from, or my generation, or writers who were, were around starting back then, knew Michael because he was one of the professors or one of the uh, instructors on, in, the, uh, in the programs. He was one of the go-tos that really, really was just a cool dude when it came to mentoring young writers. So I got the job, I called Michael, I was like, I got the job, now what do I do? And he said, calm down, don't jump off a cliff. He said, the one thing you need to know is that no one expects anything from a staff writer. I'm like, what? He's like, trust me, nobody expects anything <laughs> from you. Uh, he said, if you go there and you have something to say every 20 minutes, you'll be doing great. I said, really? He said, yeah, not more, not less. So he said, every 20 minutes, if you, if you have something to say every 20 minutes, speak up. I was like, but what if every 20 minutes? So hold it. If the, if the, if another writer <laughs> pitches what you have, let it go. Hold on to your next thing. Hold every 20 minutes. I'm like, uh, okay. So, um, so I started, the sh I started and on the show and, um, and in the comedy room, I said my first pitch and it seemed to go over decent. Okay. It's like, okay. All right. Uh, half hour later, I did my next pitch and I got a little bit of a chuckle because this is a comedy. I'm like, Ooh. And then I started to get a little, started, to get a little <laughs> started feeling myself. I was like, Oh, y'all like that. Huh? How about this one? Boom. There's a little bit of a chuckle. I'm like, yeah, how about this one? Boom. How about this one? Boom, boom, boom. And then one of the uh, co-EPs uh, was like, did sort of an undercut dig at me. Like, oh, they pitched one of those jokes. And then the other co-EPs was like, yeah, they pitched one of those jokes. And I was like, ooh, that didn't go over well. And then I started thinking, Michael Jacque, he told me not more, not less. I went back, 
I went back to the, I went back to the, you know, the, the, the paradigm. Every 20 minutes, I have something to say, right? All right. So then, uh, about a month later, the showrunners come to me and they're like, "Hey, Talisha, so we wanna, we wanna talk to you real quick. We wanna, you know, talk to you about uh, an episode." And I was like, "Oh, I understand. You know, because typically, well, I won't say typically, but during that time." Uh, on comedies, staff writers didn't necessarily get a script. Um, so uh, this was a multi-camera comedy. And uh, at that time, I'm not exactly sure if it still runs this way, but at that time we had four rooms. We had a, uh, we had a story room, we had uh, the script room where the script will come in and start to get rewritten for the scenes. Uh, we had the joke room where you're now punching up uh, the script that's kind of been approved. And then we had the polish room. You know, so you could be in any of those, you know, four rooms at the time, um, and and you know, and those were, and that's how sort of the scripts got churned out after the writer um, uh, uh, delivered it. But they need, they had a lot of people, you know, so they needed bodies to fill all those rooms. So you know, you bring in staff writers who could then just sort of just keep pitching jokes and whatnot. Um, so I figured, okay, I'm not going to get a script, and uh, and they go, no, 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 we're going to give you a script. Like, really, you are? And they're like, yeah, but you know, we just wanted to, you know, let you know, because most staff writers want to know if they're doing a good job or not. And then and they go, you know, for a staff writer, you're doing a great job. And I said, really? He said, yeah, you know, most staff writers, and I lied to you, I, I lie not. This these were the Allens, Alan Cohen, Alan Friedland. Uh, and Alan Cohen said to me, he goes, most staff writers, when they start, they either talk too much or they talk too little. But you talk just about right. <laughs> Michael Ajakwe. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's that's how it started then. Um, and then I my next gig after that, because uh, it like I said, it never aired, and then they even cut the episode order, so I never got an episode. But after that, um, I ended up getting on uh, Saving Grace. Um, and Nancy Miller was a big uh, proponent of having very diverse rooms, uh, not just uh, racially, uh, you know, but, you know, gender-wise as well as experience and, you know, and, and politically. So, cause she, she loved uh, a raucous room of voices that were opposing sort of, you know, coming out with uh, their opinions. So she was the type of person where, you know, you sit back as a staff writer and you speak every 20 minutes She's like, Talisha, huh? What are you thinking? I'm, I'm thinking I should be speaking every 20 minutes and not have anything to say for another seven minutes and 30 seconds. She's like, I want to know what you're thinking right now. I'm like, you don't. Yes, I do. Um, and and uh, and I would say that, and she go, What? Why didn't you bring that up early? I was like, Well, you know, I'm just I'm waiting for every. 20 minutes she's like no 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 she's like i want it i want to hear it throw it out you have an idea i want to i want to hear it don't hold it don't wait now the general rule is if you're a lower level um at least now in the latest shows that i've worked on which is you know ncis or uh, the originals or um switched at birth is don't interrupt an upper level mainly so if you're a lower, lower level you start as a staff writer I mean, maybe you can try the 20, you know, the 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 every 20 minute rule uh, and see if that works for you. Um, if things seem to be going well, you might want to, you know, get in there a little bit more. Uh, the rule would be wait for a lull 
in the room. Don't interrupt the upper levels uh, if they're talking or if they're debating a story point. Um, and or if you have something to say about that story point, wait for a little bit of a lull. Don't cut off an upper level. Um, and also don't negate what an upper level says. That's the number one way to not be liked. Okay. Uh, because an upper level may be wrong, but what they're doing, and a lot of uh, staff writers or young writers, when you know they come in, they don't understand this, is they're bouncing off ideas that don't work because sometimes that idea might spur another idea in someone else that does work. And um, I had, I've had friends that have been in rooms where someone's bad idea would get boo in the room or would get undercut or would just, or, you know, they would, uh, uh, they would hear it. Um, and those friends, oh my God, they hate it. They hated going to work every day. They hated going to those rooms, you know, because then, then you already, first of all, it's already a lot of pressure being on these shows because you're like, am I good? I mean, first of all, we're writers. So we're neurotic as fuck already. It's like, am I good enough? Am I am I doing a good job? And I, you know, does everybody like me? And and how can I make everybody like me? And you know, and you're always you're already going through that. I mean, so it's you know, and and they can fire me at any time, and 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 so that's awful. But then to go into a room where you're not supported, it means you don't want to talk. Um, number one, and then uh, and then number two, if you don't want to talk, you know, how do you come up? If you have the anxiety of even speaking in the room, it's hard to even come up with ideas because a lot of times you go to the worst idea and the worst place or the worst iteration of a joke, uh, which is you know one of the reasons why you might hear that writer's rooms are quite raucous, quite sexist, sometimes even racist. I mean, we'll say the most awful, awful, awful thing because then it's like, oh, okay, wait, let's explore that for this character. All right, now how do we dial that sentiment back and then put it here to then, you know, serve the the greater story at large. And if you don't feel comfortable in having the bad idea, then it's hard to even have the good idea, you know. Um, so, you know, that's Im important to know. So, if you're if you're a lower level writer, um, you know, don't interrupt the upper levels. You know, if you're gonna when you say something, just kind of wait for a lull. Um, and you know, then speak up, then jump in and there's no tiptoeing. You have to just sort of jump in with both feet with your idea, be confident in it, um, and, and see how it plays. And if you are a lower level, you know, starting in a room, my advice to you is, and you don't have like a Michael Ejakwe because unfortunately he passed, um, to advise you to say, oh, do this, do this, do this, find the mid-level person who you might connect to, or even an upper level person who you might connect to, who you can sort of go to engage from them. So how am I doing? Should I, you know, dial it up, dial it down? You know, am I being a little too uh, this or a little too that? Um, and usually they will tell you. And then also when it's a good room, um, those writers, well, and when they're good people, those writers will also help amplify you. They'll help amplify your idea. They will help amplify your voice. You know, like say, for instance, uh, there's still a bit of an issue in Hollywood with uh, a little bit of bullying 
in the room. There's still an issue in Hollywood where uh, where uh, um, a woman might have an idea or a female might have a, a pitch and it, you know, it, it crashes and burns. And then the guy five minutes later might have the same pitch. And then suddenly they think it's brilliant. It's like, uh, okay. Or the same thing, you know, with a minority or the same thing with someone who's LGBTQ. Um, but the good writers and the good people in the room, if that room is like that, will amplify your voice. Like for example, um, and don't always think it might be because you're a woman or, or something like that. Sometimes when they hear it the first time, they're not necessarily paying attention or, or they might be thinking of it from a different lens and looking at it through a different lens. And then you needed that three minutes for them to then sort of change lenses and then hear it again, be like, Oh, that's the most genius idea ever. But like I said, when you have a, when you have other good people who are writers in the room, they will amplify because if they then bring up that idea again, they'll say, you know, back to uh, John's point, John brought up that pitch. I just want to try it one more time with this on top of it, you know, and then also the upper level writer. And they will also um, um, credit, like if you said something outside of the room that then they bring up inside the room, they'll credit, you know, I was having a session with, uh, uh, with Cindy and I think that her pitch may work here, you know. Um, and when you find that person, latch on to them with all of your might. <laughs> you know, because they, uh, they're going to help your confidence because it is, this business, the main thing about this business um, is it is a confidence stealer. Um, and the more that it leeches onto your confidence, your personal confidence as to who you are and what you do and what you can bring, the more debilitating it will be for you to work and unhelpful it will be. And those writers who uplift you and who uh, amplify you um, can also be your biggest supporters um, and, uh, and can also be kind of like the, uh, uh, the litmus test as to where you need to <laughs> move your dials as to where you need to go or what you need to change or how you need to um how you need to pitch etc cetera, etc cetera. and you can trust them um as opposed to some where who will just who just who all they're looking at like those older writers from the from those previous uh old <laughs> or or classic gigs might just be looking to handicap you because you know you're you might be showing them up because you're young and you have some pitches that they didn't think of and so you don't want them to get yeah so so yeah so that's uh that's the that's my staff writer uh that's my staff writer pitch that, i think there's there's so much good so much good to take from that um both for you know new writers coming into rooms but also for writers who are in rooms and how you can help those new writers and be an ally to those new writers um before we wrap up um i want to ask paul you know, in the next year or so, one of your three to five shows that you've sold is going to be turned into a series, and uh, you're going to be in charge of that series in some uh, respect. Do you have any questions for these two folks who have been around the block a little bit, uh, had the experiences that you haven't yet had, 
that uh, can help you ease into your leadership role? Um, you know, I, I, I would un, in any other circumstance, and this is going to sound like a, a blow smoke up your ass type of moment on a podcast, but you, you kind of know this already, Ben, but um, I would normally have it except because, you know, in Canada, I don't have access to this kind of thing. Uh, but in 2015, when we when the black tape started hitting um, and my partner and we made the black tapes because no one was paying attention to our screenplay, the black tape. So we turned it into a podcast so that people will come to us from Hollywood. And then Terry said, we need to get ready. Oh, you, you know nothing about TV because he was an indie film director. He goes, you know nothing. Uh, so I need you to listen to this podcast, Writer's Panel. And it's got a bunch of showrunners on there and you could just soak it in your fear because I knew nothing about the industry. So I remember listening in in 2015 and the first episode I listened to was with a Sony executive named Chris Parnell. And I think it was the ATX Festival. And I was like, my mind was blown. And everything uh, Talisha and Shauna have been saying they were saying, and I'm like, this is, yeah. you know, this is, this is fascinating. And, and every Friday became a thing where I'd walk my dogs in the woods for an hour while listening to the new writer's panel or the back catalog. Anyways, in 2016, when we signed our first deal with Sony and Chris Parnell before that called us that same executive to say, Hey Paul, my name's Chris Parnell. Um, I really like the podcast. I was able to tell him I'm a big fan of yours uh, from a podcast. I listened to called writer's <laughs> panel. I didn't know any of his other work really, except for what you said. So because of the podcast, yours and some other ones that I listened to. Which we won't name. Of, Tendu, of course, of course. We'll you cut could that edit out. that one out. You could edit that one out. <laughs> um, uh, I, I've been able to sort of accent, and, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a beat that keeps repeating uh, that you've also heard from Talisha and Shauna about respecting other voices in the room. Right? And, and, and I think if, if, as long as I keep that in mind and just keep myself open to you know, I, I think I could learn. It'll be hard, but I think I, I could learn. The, the the only the things I would ask Tarisha and Sean is like, you know, where do you see things going in the future regarding streaming? Ugh. Because the money that <laughs> talked about in 2015 writers panel is different from the money I'm hearing about in the 2021 <laughs> writers panel episodes, and I'm coming in at the tail end of the the golden years, uh, where themes uh, where there's a lot of choice, but everything's pays less. Uh, it feels like so I, I would be curious yeah. just in terms of not so much a show running but as, as creators of shows where do you see this going i i think that's a we could do another we could do another hour on where's this going um so let's let's hold that for next time and uh talk about it because i'd love to have you all back um and paul thank you for the kind words that's that's very nice to hear um and i was in your position too like i wanted to know how the stuff I loved was getting made and there wasn't, no one was talking about it in 2014, 2015, whatever it was. So I had no choice, but to start this podcast. Um, we'll end as we always do by asking what you are watching on television these days. What's getting you excited or inspired? What are you talking about with your loved ones, the room that you're in, your friends? Um, Shauna, what are you watching now? Oh, shit. I was just going to Google things. Um, <laughs> Uh, I just started Hacks last night. Super, very excited about that show. Um, uh, I just watched The Great, which I thought was um, great. Um, it's great. <laughs> it's so fun. Um, uh, I, I, um, I can't, I'm, I'm holding shrill because I, I know I want to binge it. Um, it's going to be like my reward for getting through work this week. Um, <laughs> uh what else? Um, 
I mean, as far as like animated, um, I think it's called City of Ghosts. It's a kids mm-hmm. show on Netflix. I started to watch that. I thought it was so good and so cool and new and um, just like changing the form of what um, animated shows can be. Um, and yeah, I guess I'll stick to those for right now. And you're, I mean, we don't get a lot of comedy writers on who watch a lot of comedy. And it's nice to hear that you are. Uh, we were just talking about in my room how it's like an obligatory, we obligatorily all need to watch the latest season of The Handmaid's Tale. And because I have watched every season and I, I will at some point turn that on and, you know, just drink peppermint tea and feel sad. Um, <laughs> But I don't, I do. You don't need that I, right now. Yeah, I don't. I mean, dramas that I'm watching. Uh, yeah, you do tend to flip flop. I mean, uh, my husband, uh, it, it's funny because we just went on a, I'm, I'm having a baby. So we just went on a baby moon and um, we don't have TV. We actually, which is a terrible thing as a TV writer, we stream most everything. So um, it's always this novel amazing thing to actually watch live TV. So FX was having a Mission Impossible marathon and we did that. <laughs> uh, one, one whole day um and uh family guy which I, I from everything i've said on today's podcast you would think i would, I would hate um but um they're you know good jokes good jokes are good jokes and it has some really funny ones so uh there's one where lois asks peter um did you eat breakfast and he just goes <laughs> yeah i had a banana and a coffee and like nothing to do with the scene he just says so why am I so fat? And I just love those. <laughs> I don't know. I was like, so anyway, yeah, I'll watch a comedy. Uh, but yeah, we're, I flip flop between dramas and comedy. <laughs> sure. Uh, Talisha, what are you watching? Um, it, it's, it's been, uh, this pandemic, I've, tr- I've taken the time to catch up. On uh, on all the stuff that I heard was fantastic, um, and I can attest to the fact that it is indeed fantastic. Um, so I was watching uh, a teacher. Woo, boy! Mm. Uh, uh, normal people. That was yeah. uh, that was that one was really great. Um, um, I'm catching up on Dark. So I saw the first season of, of Dark on Netflix. Uh, the German show, and uh, and I'm I'm blown away because yeah. what I find really fascinating about that show what they did that I feel like sometimes American shows that are those type of event series and and spin out of that event don't do um, to to as as successful a degree is. They, they really started in character, who these characters were, their interpersonal relationships, the fact that they had been there for 30 years and the fact that they all have some like trauma from, you know, from just being in high school to, 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 to today uh, and how they were interconnected, how they hated. I mean, the soap opera between yeah. the characters um, because then when you get to the events and when you get to the, um, uh, it, it just, it just makes their choices that much more interesting. Um, and Absolutely. it really, really helps sort of even, you know, sort of drive the, the story even. 
Um, also, um, I'm really loving uh, Clarice, which I, I'm a big Silence of the Lambs fan. It's, you know, um, um, one of my favorite, um, certainly books, movies, huge Hannibal fan. Um, Hannibal is certainly within the top, my top five series of all time. And I'm not all, I'm dark, but not all that dark because Moonlighting is my favorite show of all time. So, you know, but I, Moonlighting, Hannibal, you know, uh, that's, <laughs> that's, that's how I roll in terms of. Uh, <laughs> so sure. When Clarice premiered, I'm like, oh my God, this is just, it's no way, no way, no way that it's just, it's going to tank because it's just yeah. no way it could touch what Hannibal did. And though it doesn't touch what Hannibal did, it is very successful in its own right because it is more of a, um, uh, it's more of a psychological drama where I feel Hannibal was more of a psychological thriller um, because the, mm -hmm. the Hannibal, the main character was kind of being chased by, Will Graham is kind of being chased by Hannibal and Hannibal is, or in Hannibal is chasing Will Graham. Um, but in Clarice, it's like sort of dealing with trauma and um and i mean and it's just really interesting and sort of the lasting effects of trauma which i mean i man kudos kudos to the creators um and writers of that series because they do a really really great job of taking a a, a venerated you know um a, a, a property and making it their own and also making it good because they had a lot to you know, they had a, they, you know, there, there were, there were big shoes that they had to fill. And, um, and I think that they did a fantastic. Yeah. The bar was high. Yeah. Oh, that's good. I'll have to check it out. Um, Paul, what are you watching these days? Um, yeah, so I've just finished binging, uh, two series that just blew my mind. Uh, last night, my wife and I finished for all mankind, uh, season mm -hmm. two. And that just, you know, just a puddle of tears at the end of that thing. Uh, I don't think that's a spoiler to say that, uh, that, that just blew me away. Um, and sort of raise the bar and I'm going back to my, my, the Bible I'm writing for a series and I'm like, okay, I need to, I need to bring this up a notch. Um, and the other one that blew me away for various reasons was Invincible because I'm watching that series, uh, the, the animated series. And, and by episode three, I, I looked at the IMDb, I had no clue that Stephen Young and Sandra O were the voices of two of the leads. And I'm like, oh, this is interesting that they cast two character, two Koreans for this that's really interesting. I wonder what where this is. And then I looked at the character. Actually, looked at the characters' names for the first time. Their last names. I'm like, and then I didn't realize they were Korean and half Korean uh, until episode three. Then I started noticing the wall art. It was all in Korean, um, and then I I, I got really weepy because I'd never seen our people <laughs> represented in in a major cartoon, a major animated series, yeah. like that, and just or even in a superhero genre in a major way. Um, and I didn't sort of like rep. It's like it's the first time representation sort of snuck up on me like that. Mm -hmm. uh, while watching something and it was it was very pleasant it was actually well more than pleasant <laughs> that's the wrong word but it was, it was quite something to feel that uh while watching something and i'm hoping my i'm thinking of all the my nephews and nieces who are going to get to experience it in their formative years instead of in their 50s like me hmm. well that's great uh and some good recommendations too from everyone thanks so much thank you for being here please come back uh and talk to us again i feel like we just scratched the surface and there's much more including where are we headed so I'm going to go lie down now because that's terrifying <laughs> to think about. <laughs> Thank you all so much. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. 
For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.